This is episode 5B of Free as in Freedom. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Coon. This is Free as in Freedom. So we have a, an interview from uh, a year ago. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a little old. <laughs> yes, this is the 30th GNU interview uh, done with Richard Stallman, uh, released a few weeks after the 31st. <laughs> However, it is exclusive content that you can't get anywhere else. That's true. It was never released. Never before been heard. So enjoy. Yeah, so it's an interview. So uh, it's an interview with me and Karen and Richard Stallman. So Karen, we're here on the 30th anniversary, or technically the day after the 30th anniversary of the GNU project with a very special interview. So we're, we, there are a couple of days of uh, hackfests and celebrations here at, at MIT, and we are just outside the office of Richard Stallman, sitting with the man himself. So, uh, so RMS, I have a bunch of questions I want to ask you. Of course. About the GNU project, the early days of the GNU project. Wait, we should start by saying uh, congratulations. <laughs> well, you should tell GNU congratulations. It's GNU's anniversary, not mine. That's true. But you're its, you're its founder, there's no question, and it's Chief Gnusens. <laughs> well, so, then we should say thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you for starting the GNU Project and for, for founding the Software Freedom Movement for all of us. Uh, oh, I, uh, and that is, that is a, 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 joining in Jerry Sussman, a, a, another important uh, contributor to free software and a member of the FSF uh, Board of Directors as well, saying hello to all of us. I want to tell you about as a story I've actually never told you of how I first read the GNU Manifesto and ask you if, if, if this was part of your plan. So uh, you, you'll probably remember in the early days of Emacs the debates about whether Control-H uh, should be backspace or not. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, when I first got my first copy of Emacs, I was on a terminal that had that you couldn't change the keys and Control-H was the backspace key. It sent Control-H to the machine no matter what you did. And uh, when I would hit back, uh, until I learned how to remap keys, I'd hit backspace and I'd get help. And a lot of times you would hit backspace and start typing other things. And from the help menu, you could get a, presented with either a copy of the GNU Manifesto or a copy of the GPL. And in fact, this was the reason that I first read the GNU Manifesto and the GPL, as it turns out, because of this problem that I had when I first installed Emacs. And of course, that changed my life. And my curiosity is, is did you take the control H shouldn't be backspace side, thinking that maybe that might happen? Did no. you have any idea that might happen? No. Did you ever consider Emacs that? is older than yeah. uh, the idea that those that that key should send the backspace right. character. Yeah. When Emacs conflicts with other things, usually it's because those other things came along later. <laughs> I'm not surprised at all. But it was it was kind of a, a lucky happenstance that that was the case because I'm not sure. I, I probably would have read the GNU manifesto and GPL eventually, but I read it early on when I first installed Emacs because of that. So 
I'm I'm glad for that in some sense that that that, that had happened uh, as it caused. I'm me glad to too, but <laughs> no, it was not a plan to make people enter the help system when they didn't want to. I, I, I figured that I figured that, but I thought I thought it was a relatively interesting story. Um, hopefully, um, so so one of the things that um, I, I think is is interesting about the history of of GNU is um, is a level of volunteerism. Right, and Karen, I think you find a lot of GNOME is written by volunteers. Right? Yeah, I think a, 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 a delightfully high percentage of GNOME is uh, is written and uh, and and organized by volunteers, which is great. But I think that um, that different projects are finding that to be, you know, more and less the more. Some projects don't find that to be as much of the case. Um, I'm happy when people get paid to contribute to GNU. I don't think of that as a flaw at all. But do you think that we need do a large group of both volunteers and? We want as many developers as we can recruit, whether they're paid or not. So, so one of the things that I think about with regard to developers getting paid is is how much uh, proprietary software developer salaries have gone up over, say, the, the history of GNU against inflation. And so there's such an enticement for people to write proprietary software. I'm curious if you have thoughts. On I don't know if against. that's true. I have no idea because I don't pay attention. I've, 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 I've actually, before this interview, I looked at the numbers, and it turns out that it's it has gone up. Proprietary software developers make more and more money. It's much more than people who do other types of jobs. Well, I'm sad. I hope we can get to a world where they don't anymore. So, uh, and one way we can get there is by refusing to use the proprietary software. I agree with that completely. So, 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 are there? What do you think are the ways in the future we want to use to try to convince people to say, "I'm willing to take a lower, completely reasonable wage if you'll let me write only free software"? Well, I don't know to what extent they'll find opportunities to do that. But on the other hand, if they're getting paid a very high wage, maybe they can work half time. Yeah, and, and in fact, that's a lo how a lot, of GNU, a lot of early GNU contributors actually wrote proprietary software as their day jobs and, came, and were so excited about GNU, they came home at night and on weekends and contributed to GNU. Yeah, well, the point is we would like people to contribute to free software. Separately from that, uh, we wish people wouldn't contribute to proprietary software and that requires basically for people to have a strong enough feeling of disgust for the way proprietary software treats its users that they decide that they don't want to be involved in that anymore. So I guess what advice would you give to somebody who is looking at a proprietary software development job thinking that maybe they could work half-time and contribute to Well, research. working half-time on proprietary software is better than working full-time on proprietary software, but it only gets you halfway to where you really should go, which is not contributing to proprietary software at all. I thought you might say that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one, well, one of the things that I, I think, Karen, you've seen this as well, that, that there actually are a lot of jobs now that let people contribute to free software, but companies have discovered, as we've known for a long time, that the lax permissive licenses are much preferable for their point of view because they can proprietorize later uh, the work that their employees might contribute under those licenses. Uh, so I think it's caused, we were talking actually last night at a dinner where we all were at, that there's kind of a, I see a cognitive dissonance in developers who might prefer a copyleft license to defend users' freedoms, and instead they sort of say, well, it's okay because it's permissive license and it still is free software, so what's the big deal? Well, p 
partly they're right. It is still free software. On the other hand, if they get their work mixed with somebody else's work that's under the GNU GPL, then the whole thing will be copylefted. And thus, even if their lines of code are not in some sense copylefted, it would be useless to try to separate their lines of code from other people's lines of code. So that's one way in those situations they can arrange to copyleft. Yeah. Well, uh, I, think, I think a lot of the times, though, the permissive, I think people are sort of... The lax permissive licenses. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of times when people use these lax licenses, um, more realistically, they get mixed with proprietary licensing and then everybody loses. Right. Well, the point is that this is something that that person could arrange to do. If the person is told by the employer, you can write free software, but it has to be under a lax permissive license, then that employee can arrange to mix her lines of code with other GPL code to the point where her lines of code by themselves are of no use. Yeah, I think I think in practice that's probably hard for folks to do because there's these huge projects now that are all lax permissive licensed. Well, that, that's true, you know. but they don't have to work on those. Is what I'm saying. Well, I, I think I think a lot of the free software jobs that are available tend to be that. You look at something like OpenStack, which is hire the, the OpenStack Foundation itself hiring many developers and lots of companies. Oh, well, are that's hired. different. That's different. Um, please, let's uh, not I, jump around from one scenario to another without talking about the change. You were talking okay. about people who are being permitted to write free software Correct. on the side, apparently. Oh, no, that's what that implies. But jobs to write to develop a free program, yes, that's, that's a right. different thing. Well, that's a lot better than working on proprietary yeah, software. Agreed, agreed. Even if it is under a lax license, it's still a positive contribution. Uh, so we wouldn't want those jobs to disappear. On the other hand, it's a bad thing to have so much money pushing people not to use copyleft. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was commenting on. I think that, that's, that's a real concern. That it is a real concern. And what what can we do? Well, we can show, when we show people why copyleft is morally important, then we'll see more people insisting on copylefting. Because here's what happens. You'll find some people who would like to copyleft, but the pressure from other people in the project they want to work on uh, is not to do so, and they go along with it. So those people should start making copylefted add-ons. When they make a, a change that's big enough, then they should say, this is a copylefted add-on for that non-copylefted free program, and that's just it. You know, I don't care if, they, if the people in such and such project uh, include it. I'm going to distribute this, and let's... I, I hope others will join with me to make this a success. Well, uh, go ahead, Karen. I was just going to say, like, what would you say to people who um, who are feel like they need to choose lax permissive licensing uh, because they think that they'll get more corporate adoption? Who cares? You know, if a company uses our software, that's good for the company. It's the company that's benefiting. They should thank us. We shouldn't feel we need them. We don't need them. I'm, I'm glad when uh, someone finds my software useful, but I'm not going to abandon the defense of all the user's freedom just to get some company to use my software. Because we got to recognize that uh, 
when a company uses my software, they're benefiting from my work. I don't need them. They need me. Yeah, and I think a lot of developers, that actually leads to an interesting point, because I get the sense in talking to developers, they often don't realize that. They don't re they, they, one of the things I often say is that if all the developers got together who write software went on strike saying, we will only write free software, we'd win our movement in a day. Yes. But, they, but I think a lot of developers believe, they, they almost feel beholden to their employer. Their empl they, they, they kind of get this sense of, of, oh, my employer is providing all this for me, and my job is Sorry, nice. the job is what? Uh, writing, writing maybe a mix of free software and proprietors, most commonly. That's, that's actually mm -hmm. the most common job in our community today, is people mm -hmm. write, you know, they maybe spend 20 to 40% of their time on free software and the rest of the time on some proprietary thing. Oh, well, they should realize that when they're writing a proprietary software, they're making the world a worse place. Now, if they can't find a way to stop for a while, I can understand that. But they should be feeling bad about the fact that they're writing proprietary software. And certainly not grateful to whoever has led them to write proprietary software. Uh, maybe those jobs are less evil than some other jobs which don't allow it writing any free software, but they're still doing wrong. So the employee in those cases should not feel grateful. The employee, if, if I were that employee, I'd feel I've got to get free. I've only partly got free and I've got to get all the way free. I've got to stop writing proprietary software, stop helping anyone put chains on somebody. So, so what is your advice to, to somebody who's made the next step and they've now got a job, and I know many developers in the situation I'm about to describe, who have a job writing only free software, but their employer is very clear that they can only release code and only contribute to projects that are under lax permissive licenses. They should insist on being able to work in their personal projects on anything they like. Well, I think that's you know, a good if the rule company, for all developers, really. Yeah, the point, but the point is, if the company says, we are paying you to work on such and such, and such and such is a project under a lax license, well, that's okay. It's not wrong. They're contributing to free software. I wouldn't say you should reject that kind of job. But you should insist on being, in your personal projects, copylefting your code. And if that's stuff that you're not doing for that company, why, what's happening here? It's Somebody turned on a light? Yeah, there's some strange lights on. We're going to put I it know. on pause. Pause here. We'll just let it record and oh, okay. Dan can edit. Oh, I see. Somebody came in and needs a light. Oh, okay. So while it makes noise. Okay, it's okay. We'll be able to pick up from there. Okay. So. Relate, related to that, I actually, before, um, because I, I know you used to give advice that when you're contributing to a permissive license project as a, as a matter of collaboration... If you're uh, you making should... fairly small changes, then you should give them to the developers so the developers can use them. If you're making a, uh, a self-contained added module that's big enough, mm -hmm. then it makes sense for you to copyleft it. So are we at a point where, in some cases, we should start thinking about forking permissive license, or have we not reached that point yet? No, I'm not talking about. It. I'm saying. No, I'm just that I'm, I know it's a different issue. I'm curious, like. Your I don't know. I mean, sorry, it's just not a question that makes sense to look at in any general way. I see. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, all I can say in general is, when you're making fixes and small improvements, the best thing is to help the developers make their version better. 
whereas when you make a, a big improvement, you should copy left it. Do you have more questions? Uh, on, unrelated. I guess I was wondering what you think are the biggest challenges for GNU are going forward. Well, I'm not sure about... I don't know how to separate challenges for GNU from challenges for free software. Talk about They're you. not the same, yeah. but yeah, uh, the latter is what I think about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, there's, there are challenges for free software, and then there are challenges for... Uh, for reinforcing use of copyleft. Mm -hmm. And these are two different things. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's for free software, the main thing, the, the main danger comes from the devices and the platforms that we can't use. There are the devices whose uh, commands are secret or whose uh, specs are secret and we can't write free software to run them. They only run with proprietary software. And so far, the only known solution, ex well, occasionally we convince a company to cooperate, and that's great. But if a company stubbornly won't cooperate, then there's nothing we can do to convince them. So all that's left is reverse engineering. So people who want to make a big contribution to the free software community in a technical way should do reverse engineering. This is the opportunity to do a, a, not, a, a small to medium amount of work, but have it make a tremendous difference. But there are also the platforms that bar free software, like the iThings, and Microsoft is following the same path. Platforms that won't permit any free software to be run. And this is also a this is bad for the users directly because it means we can't give the users freedom. The only way to get freedom is to take that machine and junk it seriously. There, there's The only good thing to do with those machines is trash them. But well, hopefully no, recycle the components, but well, fine. not, not use them as computers not anymore. That. Yeah. Uh, that's a digression. Yeah. The other harmful effect they have is that the only way some free code can run on those machines is if it's under a lax license and gets converted into a proprietary app, which means it has done no good at all for users' freedom. So the desire to make programs run on those platforms leads to not copylefting them, which means then they, people end up using them on those platforms and so what? That does no good for the world at all. So the, so it's cr one crucial reason to put your code under the GPL is to resist the people who will want to turn it into a proprietary app in an app store. Yeah, no, um, I just want to, uh, RMS won't know this, but but we had, when we did that uh, discussion of that uh, talk from FOSM about app stores, this was a point that Karen and I raised heavily, that the folks talking about app stores were saying that, oh, it's so great that you get the software in the hands of users, but but they were ignoring the fact, uh, and we pointed this out mm -hmm. during that show, that the that they're ignoring the fact that it gets into their hands as proprietary software. So it's yeah. not actually right, getting right, their hands right. as free software. That success is not po does not equal popularity. Yeah. 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 The success sure. for software yeah. freedom is not the same. Well, as yeah. the software being popular. Well, right. And that's actually a trade-off well, we see been, often. I've been confronting that attitude since the beginning because there are a lot of people, a lot of developers 
who measure their success by how many people use their software. And that has often been their motive for choosing a lax license. And I think it's simply the wrong value. It's, it's a mistake to, it, it's basically, it's uh, egotistical to measure success by how many people use your software. You begin to measure, measure by how much freedom you give how, others. Yeah. How much good you've done for the world is not the same as how many people are running your code. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, actually, I, I think one of the points you brought up about the, the hardware platforms was related to a question that Karen and I wanted to ask about. I feel maybe maybe this is just because where I'm at in my career and life, but but I feel like it's worse than ever because we're being attacked from the bottom because more and more devices require proprietary drivers or have CPUs mm-hmm. on them and are proprietary firmwares that are user upgradable. And so we're being kind of attacked from the bottom in a way we weren't in the past. And then coming from the top side of, of you talk the whole software environment, the top you have this proprietary JavaScript being shipped to people's browsers all the time. And most applications people run are being delivered as proprietary distributed JavaScript applications onto their computer. And so it seems like while while there's more free software than ever in the world, there's also more proprietary software than ever in the world, it feels like. I feel like we're losing ground. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. Well, the way I see it, in the areas where we have fought, we have gained a lot. But new areas appear, Mm -hmm. and they tend to appear in the proprietary world, and at the beginning, they're 100% unfriendly to users' freedom. So we end up having to fight in those theaters as well, and we're doing so. We now are campaigning against proprietary JavaScript. We are uh, having successes, our community is having successes in reverse engineering, now, how much that can be traced to our uh, attempts to recruit people to do this, I don't know how, uh, right, I can't tell how much of it is thanks to our efforts, but at least it's happening. Yeah, I, I agree it's happening. I, I, I worry, particularly on the, and that lesson, I don't know the reverse engineering side as well, but what I see on the JavaScript side, that the, the, the JavaScript uh, development community there's a few traits about that community that are really concerned me. One is that they prefer to just write uh, libraries under lax permissive licenses and share those freely, and they do under uh, under free software licenses. But all the applications grab those libraries, proprietarize them, and then make some proprietary well, applications. They don't, I don't know whether you whether it's true that they make the libraries proprietary. As far as I can tell, when a site uses jQuery, it's usually an unmodified jQuery under its same lax but free license. The problem is the rest of the code is non-free. Actually, actually, the funny part is that, that while the people rarely modify jQuery, most copies of jQuery you get are basically proprietarized because they're minified and it doesn't point back. It doesn't use like they don't JS point back. and they don't it's point back. But, I mean, in the end, it's not that big of a deal because it's really just the unmodified one you could get yeah. from upstream. But on the other hand, right. it, it, it goes to the culture that in the JavaScript right. community so, of well, just minifying is, everything and making it proprietary. We, well, there's nothing wrong with minifying. That's basically compiling. Oh, well, yes, but the but point they is should tell people where the source is. Right. But they don't and, see any need to do that. Right. Well, the, the point is, I don't know how to reach the JavaScript developers. 
Yeah, where I mean, do they I, talk to each other? <laughs> on GitHub, mostly, it seems like. Um, I mean, and it's interesting that the GitHub culture, which is also a proprietary application mix of server-side and proprietary JavaScript, um, that's there's a strong connection with that community and a strong connection to this obsession with lax permissive licenses. It, it, there's, there's like a cultural thing occurring that, that I, I, and I agree with but you. But I, I ask you a qu understand. practical question. How do we talk to JavaScript developers? If I knew, I'd be doing it. I think it's 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 tough because there's a lot of cultural differences in in the way they treat development. It's it's see, and this is what I was was thinking of is that in the old Unix community, there was actually a sense of software sharing. I think you did a lot to establish how to do software sharing in a good legal framework so that it really was free. But there was Usenet postings and people posted, which was a technically source available, non-free because they didn't put a license on it. But the idea of posting your code in Usenet and sharing it around, even if you weren't doing it perfectly, was a part of the culture. We need to see if there are magazines that those people read. <laughs> I don't think they know what a magazine is. <laughs> I mean, right? These are people who are post-magazine world. They, they, they live... What are you talking about? They're magazines. Yeah, but people, people under 30 don't read them anymore. They just read stuff online. I don't believe that. Really? I, That's nonsense. Yeah. I, well, I, I'm exaggerating a little to, for well, effect. Well, don't, okay? Yeah. It's okay. not a good effect. Yeah. It's so. not constructive. Um, but I, th I think it's a cultural difference. The Unix, the reason, one of the reasons I think GNU was able to be successful quickly uh, in the way that it was because the Unix culture was already leaning towards a software sharing community and GNU took it to the next step where it needed to go. The JavaScript community and We is need not to show way. those people that there are people who will not use their sites if they do things this way. Oh, that's a good idea. That's definitely a good idea. We need and more of those people Libre who And that's what LibreJS is yeah. for. Yeah. Uh, so if you install LibreJS and you complain, because one of the functions of LibreJS, it doesn't just detect non-free JavaScript, it also looks for how to complain to the webmasters so that you can send a complaint quickly. And you should take advantage of that. Send 10 complaints a day. Uh, it'll, it should only take you 10 minutes. And the point is, by sending these complaints, you will help show webmasters that this is an issue they should take seriously. And another, another thing you'll do, by the way, the latest version of LibreJS can recognize that there are several unrelated JavaScript programs in the same page. And some of them, like the ones that might uh, rat on you to Google Analytics and other things that are trying to track people, they just get blocked. But the rest, it's, if it's free, might run. So the result is it's a lot easier for the site to make its own JavaScript free, even if it continues to have malicious, separate JavaScript programs, and LibreJS will just block those. And so it's, it's a lot easier for the site to arrange to function with LibreJS. There's less work that they have to do. And once they do it, you'll still be protected from the malicious code, and although you'll be a, although the site will just work. So install LibreJS and send complaints. Send several complaints every day so that we can start pressuring those web developers to respect our freedom. Another plugin that people ought to consider using is also NoScript, which just by default denies all JavaScript. Yeah, and, but and, LibreJS is better because... Oh, I think running both together is a good idea. 
Well, no script. If no script blocks all JavaScript, well, you have to allow as... you have to allow each uh, JavaScript program separately. So, so it actually gives you a, a nice. Uh, I, I think it's good for users to try out initially because you can sort of see how much JavaScript you're getting. I think a lot of web users. LibreJS will show you that too. Oh, maybe it's maybe they've incorporated some of the features. Of no, it's just LibreJS will warn whenever you're to run non-free JavaScript, and almost all of it is. Oh, okay. So it basically does the same effect. So. Uh, so I, I but but one of the things I think we we want to do is encourage people to write free software applications under copyleft license in JavaScript, which is not happening as much. Yeah. So we have to recruit we have to recruit JavaScript programmers to to well the thing <laughs> is software. Well, we copyleft need, we need to teach them, but ma the main thing is we need to teach them about the issue of freedom. Because our resources are so small, a new area is likely to develop without our paying a lot of attention to it because we're uh, trying to deal with the fights we're already in. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's exactly how mm -hmm. the JavaScript community became the way it is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was a surprise to me when I saw it in full form. Uh, when I started paying attention to it, it was already mm -hmm. there, and obviously it was developing yeah. over a period of years. But like right. you, I was busy fighting other, on other fronts, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 so and so I think I think one of uh, one of the things I was encouraged is really I think you do a, a great deal of this is talking to young people, young programmers, because I think telling young programmers about uh, software freedom early is is really important because if they don't hear the message until later, they've already been influenced so much by mm -hmm. other messages at that point. Uh, whereas here, uh, speaking on college campuses, which I know you do a lot of, is I think incredibly valuable. So I, I want to thank you for all that work that you do, giving all those speeches. Well, it would be good if you spoke on college I, campuses. I, I try to. I speak on. A, I do give a lot of talks. Um, it's I, I try my best. <laughs> so and I know Karen does as well. So is there anything else that that you? Because uh, our list, just to give you a sense, our listeners are usually very sophisticated uh, free software uh, advocates and developers. So, so is there any any message you specifically want to give people who already know a lot of the basics uh, well, that you would want them to hear? If you're not a good public speaker, you could join a Toastmasters club. That's a good place to learn to do better speaking. Agreed. And so that way you could develop your speaking skills and become a free software speaker. I think that's a really good point that our, you know, you listening to our program, the fact that you're here listening to us means you have a, a, a good amount of knowledge, which means you could be a very effective advocate for software freedom. Now, it's important to read lots of articles in GNU.org slash philosophy, GNU.org slash licenses, and GNU.org slash GNU, and GNU.org slash distros to inform yourself of the important points so that you'll be able to uh, present them correctly. That and learning to be a good speaker are all you need, and the Toastmasters Clubs will help you learn to be a good speaker if you aren't one already. Now, I had to learn to be a good speaker. I had to do it many times and pay attention to the results I was get, getting. You know, if, so if people misunderstood some point and they told me, then I realized I had to say that differently. And, the, and being in a Toastmasters Club helped me was also a lot of fun. 
But it was also a, a lot of work, I assume, that you put you put a lot of effort into into this. Yes. And, and I want to point that out to our listeners because I, I think a lot of people don't realize, uh, the three of us sitting here, uh, Karen, RMS, and me, uh, it's it's a lot of work to become a good free software advocate, and and it requires a dedication. And I know RMS, you've spent so many years with that level of dedication, and I think we're all very grateful for you to that. But I think some people don't understand sometimes how hard the, how how much effort needs to be put in because it's well, fighting for freedom is not easy. The other the other point is that uh, you can learn it. If you're not a good speaker now, if you don't feel comfortable giving public speeches, that doesn't mean you can't do it. It means you have to learn it. It's, I, a, it's something that can be learned. Yeah. I had to learn it, and I do it pretty well now, so don't give up. Well, and I also want to add to that another thing not to give up on. I know I know dozens of developers, um, some of whom are amazing developers and some of whom, frankly, are just average developers who insist on not taking jobs. Uh, I'm sorry, insist on jobs allowing them only to work on free software. We are in a world where if you're willing to take a little bit less money, not 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 starving wages, but reasonable wages, uh, but less than your colleagues, and you want to make a demand that you only work on free software. I was just talking to someone today here at the GNU 30th who's looking for a job, who has that as his primary uh, ask uh, and, and won't take a job that won't agree to it. Now, he doesn't have as many options, but he had a job before like this, and he's, he's likely to get another. He's, he's, he's close to getting a few offers. So I encourage people, don't assume that the only way you can be employed as a programmer, may, maybe years ago that was true, it was proprietary software, but it's certainly not true anymore. And uh, I would and, say that probably all three of us at this table would agree that the benefits of making less money but doing work that you feel good about uh, is amazing. It just makes your life so much better. Yeah, it enables you to feel good about your life. I think everybody has different, you know, different things that they, different priorities about their own lives and uh, things that they think are worthwhile to spend money on. And um, for some people, living frugal is easier than for others for what they want. Um, but I, I think you make some good points. So, well, I think we should we should wrap it up and uh, and and wish uh, wish all the uh, contributors to the GNU project a happy thirtieth. Uh, thank uh, RMS again for his great Usenet post that said, "I will write a free Unix that will be free for everyone to share." And thank you for starting the GNU project, Richard. Happy hacking! Thanks for talking to us. So I think the best part about the audio is that it really gives a sense of what it's like to sit down and have a chat with Richard. That's true. Uh, when he says like "Don't change the topic," uh, he does. He does that. He says that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but it's uh, his his desire to. So one of the things I've learned from him is is that is people have a tendency to conflate issues. If if RMS is good at anything, he's very good at trying to avoid conflating issues about free software. I just got an email from him conflating issues. <laughs> but it wasn't about conflating issues of free software. It was. Um, it well, was. I, well, at least I told him I thought it was. But um, but uh, he is he is a good uh, logical thinker in some ways. Well, uh, he uh, yeah. I, I I mean I think that it's uh, okay. So uh, you don't agree? That's fine. I I, th I think that that's that he he I've certainly learned from him how to avoid conflating issues more. I mean I've definitely learned a lot from him. I was actually recently I um, I spoke at. Um, at this event called Campus Party in Ecuador, which had 
uh, 3,000 college students, which was really interesting. And I was a keynote, but it was like in the expo floor. It was very strange. But uh, but uh, somebody asked me in the Q&A what I thought of Richard Stallman. And what I said was that, um, well, I said a bunch of things. But among the things that I said is that I've, I've, I've actually learned a lot from him um, and uh, that I think he made me a better lawyer and a better advocate, in part because he, you know, he breaks things down very simply and he, um, you know, doesn't tolerate complicating issues unnecessarily, which is, I think, what you're sort of getting at as well. Yeah, I think I think one of the one of the things one of his favorite phrases is "That's a different issue." <laughs> he says that all the time. That's a different issue. I, I, I think keeping keeping things separate is useful, uh, and and trying to talk about issues separately is is important. Um, I, I think I think he might, sometimes he doesn't realize how they interconnect. So it's he errs mm. on that side sometimes. He doesn't realize that things interconnect with each other. In ways, um, he and I've, I've argued a lot about the the web services thing, and and, and he's made my cl- thing a little bit clearer on it. But I think he he thinks he sees some things in that separate that I think are inter- more interrelated than than he notices. Like he and I sort of disagree about the uh, basically the, the in practice most web applications are this mix of client side JavaScript and server side something, right? And so. In the end, the entire thing is basically just this big proprietary software thing. It just happens to be the case that some of it's never released and some of it's JavaScript, proprietary JavaScript. And because that's such so often the common scenario that I don't know if making the, like talking about those two things and completely separately matters all that much mm-hmm. because the whole delivery to you is proprietary. Right. Um, and so he's very important about keeping the, okay, JavaScript distributed to you in the browser. That's distribution of software. That's a regular proprietary software problem. And the server side thing needs different analysis completely. That would be his argument. Mm-hmm. So I see some value in that, but I also think that in practice, they're both pretty bad and they both treat users pretty bad. So there's an example of the <laughs> conflating versus. Oh no! I mean, I think he has he has really good points. So, okay. So um, I don't know if we have more extra leftover audio. We might. We might. And in some cases, I think there's audio that's leftover that's not. So we debated <laughs> about this because some of this stuff uh, was timely when it was recorded, and it's a little stale now. But I think it it makes for a, a good listen even now. Yeah, we weren't sure. If people really didn't like this, well, I mean, I don't have that much left of old audio that we never released. A lot of it's from that time when we were not recording anything. I mean, this was what this was the beginning of that time. Yeah, this uh, interview with. I mean, at least uh, it's not a talk that you can you could have heard elsewhere. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was an interview you could have heard it elsewhere. Exactly. Unless you were standing in the lobby of the AI lab at MIT on that day. I think Jerry Sussman heard some of it. <laughs> he was sitting in his office. Oh, was he? I didn't realize. Yeah, he, well, he was there right at the beginning, remember? I don't, actually. You don't remember? Okay. No. It was, it was a long time ago. Okay. It was only, it was only actually, it was more than a year ago. I guess, it, I, oh, right, because this is the 30th, I'm confused, because mm-hmm. the 30th, the GNU's anniversary is in, no, it's coming. It was last th- year. The 30th, was last year, what time of year? In September. In September, right, yeah. So it was just recently the 31st anniversary of GNU. Right, right. Because uh, the re- the way I always remember this is when RMS announced GNU, he said he would expect to be done by Thanksgiving, <laughs> and because he announced it like in September in or September. something, and then he said he was gonna. What did he say he was gonna be done by Thanksgiving? I forget. There was something. I have to look it up. I don't remember. Yeah, but he was. I think it was like either Emacs or something. He was gonna be finished by something Thanksgiving. big. Something big that was not finished <laughs> by that Thanksgiving. It's like it's the kind of, it's the kind of thing of which Thanksgiving did he mean, um, <laughs> but yeah. So that's uh, 
that's that. So, okay. I hope you enjoyed it. Freeze and Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Freeze and Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Freeze and Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Freeze and Freedom website, faith.us. That's faif.us. Did you just record that? Well, I try. I was trying. I was. Everybody's talking, and then I'm supposed to. Okay, so.